0: Hello and welcome to the Combat Classics podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we have today special guest, my good friend George Ecklerly, graduate of St. John's College and co-founder of the Plato Project, along with me, which is a uh, online seminar series for St. John's College alumni going through the complete works of Plato. But George and I uh, wanted to do one of our favorite William Shakespeare plays, King Lear. So George is going to. Uh, ask an opening question, and we're going to get into it.
1: Okay. I, I guess my opening question would be, um, I, I think it's it's pretty well established that this is one of the big four, great four tragedies that Shakespeare wrote. Um, King Lear, Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello. And to me, those plays break up into two groups because of th- Hamlet and King Lear, the main character, the title character seems to be ennobled and larger and better at the end of the play than they were at the beginning. Um, and Macbeth and Othello, I think it's the reverse. So the question that I've got is: and I've seen productions done both ways. Is King Lear ultimately an optimistic play, or is it a deeply pessimistic play?
0: I think that's a good question. That that opens a lot of stuff. Um, I wanna I wanted to build on that. I want to ask: How much does Lear change? And there's two passages um, I want to read about that. So the play opens with Kent asking of Gloucester, I thought the king had more affected the Duke of Albany than Cornwall. And then Gloucester replies, It did always seem to us, but now in the division of the kingdom, it appears not which of the dukes' is values most, for equalities are so weighed that curiosity and neither can make choice of either's moiety. So we open with this power struggle, right? And it's a power struggle that um, the dukes, Kent and Gloucester, are trying to figure out. They don't have a clear idea. Mm hmm. And then, all the way in, in 5 3, at this point, Lear and Cordelia have been captured by Edmund's army and are being led away to prison. And Lear says, Come, let's away to prison. We two alone will sing like birds of the cage. When thou dost ask me blessing, I'll kneel down and ask of thee forgiveness. So we'll live and pray and sing and tell old tales and laugh at gilded butterflies and hear poor rogues talk of court news. And we'll talk with them too, who loses and who wins, who's in, who's out, and take upon the mystery of things as if we were God's spies. And so my question around that is that while Lear apparent, you know, has, has reconciled with Cordelia, and also reconciled with his fate, he still can't turn off this political intrigue thing that he is seemingly still fascinated about and hasn't realized that his uh, infatuation with political intrigue has led him to this and his miscalculations. So has he really uh, improved in the most important kind of way by realizing that that's what has caused his ruin.
1: That's an interesting viewpoint because you're interpreting it 180 degrees from the way I, first of all, that passage is probably my favorite passage in Shakespeare. You know, that's it, you know. Um, Are you, are
0: you like me where that changes every couple days or has that been for a while now?
1: That's been for a while. That's been for a while because I think that the problem with King Lear at the beginning is that he is a father and he is a political being and he, you know, he's doing a bad job by mixing them up. You know, as a King, he's acting like a father as a father, he's acting like a King and both of them are interfering with each other. And at the end of the play, you know, before, he's, I want a hundred knights. I want to run things. I want to have all the additions of the king. And there, he's, he's not a king and a father. He's a father. And he's saying, as long as I have Cordelia to talk to, I have everything in the world I need. It's, it's like when Hamlet says, you know, I could be bounded in a nutshell and still count myself the king of infinite space if I didn't have bad dreams. And he's like, you know, but as long as I'm with Cordelia, there are no bad dreams, you know, or Hamlet again at the end where, you know, if it be not now, it will be, you know, right, you know, readiness is all. So, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't quote that exactly, but, you know, at the end yeah, where... And I would have. Yeah so you know there is a moment for example where hamlet it's all revenge revenge you've got to do this you've got to do you've got to do the task and at the end it's like we defy augury Whatever's going to happen is going to happen and it's probably going to happen for the best and i'm going to be equal to it whatever happens so i'm not tortured anymore and i accept my fate and i accept sort of that the the thing that's supposed to happen is going to happen. And to me, that is almost like the highest point that anybody in Shakespeare reaches. You know, they've, they've achieved Zen. They've achieved Satori. Uh, they've achieved enlightenment. And King Lear is there, except he's with another person. So it's better. It's like the two of us. You know, as long as you and I can talk together, the world is our Japanese rock garden.
0: Well, that seems to be much different than the other tragedies that you laid out, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, the 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 best example is, you know, our our greatest source of modern literary criticism is obviously Facebook memes.
2: And <laughs> <laughs> there, I,
0: I saw one recently in one of the Shakespeare uh, groups or pages that I follow, which is just if if Hamlet were Othello and Othello were Hamlet, right? yeah and uh if if iago tried to play the same tricks on hamlet that he played on othello (laughs) hamlet would just you know within five minutes be like you're a liar why are you making this up and if othello was hamlet and the ghost of his father came and said this person killed me (laughs) avenge me othello would walk into the next room pull out his sword and kill claudius Right. right um so this this is where the, the differences in the characters come out and especially between Lear and Hamlet, right? Because you said that Hamlet was, you know, resigned to his fate, but he was also resigned to action in his fate. Right. Right. And just um, before, just, just to finish this thought, just before this scene where Lear and Cordelia um, are reunited, we see Lear uh, covered in seaweed walking along the beach Playing the fool,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, which does not, which does seem to me that he's resigned to his fate, but it's not a fate of action, right?
1: Well, that's not completely voluntary. Uh, but let me go back to what you just said the Shakespearean. Movie. That actually goes back, I think, to A.C. Bradley's Shakespearean tragedy. He made that observation. He said these tragic fates that they've got seem to belong to the characters. Because if you switch them, every you know the the challenge that one character faces would be quite easily overcome by another character, and you know, like Hamlet, when they say we saw the ghost of your father, and he's asking them all these Columbo questions, like, was he wearing was he wearing armor? Did I'm gonna have... I'm gonna
0: need a Peter Falk impression. Uh... I
1: can't. <laughs> uh, just one more thing, uh, <laughs> but just. Uh, you know, and I think it's a trick question. You know, he's like, oh, yeah, the ghost of my father. Yeah, okay. What did he look like? Oh, he was wearing armor, so he had the vizard down so you couldn't see his face. And I said, no, it, it was up. And it's like, oh, was his hair, you know, black? And it's like, no, it was more sable silvered. It was, you know. So he's asking all these questions. Yeah, and so I think that if the three witches went up to Hamlet, he would challenge him to a game of chess and it would last 70 years. You know they would not get him um, but again, the scene where he's on the on the beach he's crazy, but on the other hand it's kind of inspiring because he's crazy in the same way Ophelia is crazy, so this play is like if if, if Ophelia got through the other end of her craziness you know it's like oh here's rue for you, oh, you wear this with a difference and just everything is an allegory and everything is a song and everything is uh little you know pieces of melody and the the you know it's like the 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 mind is like this destroyed blown up building and it sort of how it sort of pulls itself together towards the end um where he's had some rest, and they bring him up, and he starts to see. Oh, this is. I think this is my daughter. Um,
0: but it's Cordelia that has that effect, right? I mean, it. it there, there's Cordelia
1: them- and a doctor, and a right. doctor. Remember, they they give him some medicines, and they give him some rest. And it's always that. If only he has some rest. He's having some kind of nervous breakdown almost. And it's like almost, if he has some rest of get away from this and he's like, Oh, down, down hysterical passio, down this, how this mother's building up towards my heart. And then when he's with Regan and it's like, you can see him trying to be normal. And then Kent's in the stocks, although he doesn't know it's Kent, it's Caius or whatever. And it's like, Okay, all right, I'll give you a good answer. Then he looks and sees him in the stocks. It's like, who put him in the stocks? And he starts to lose it. Then he turns away and said, No, 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 I'll be patient. I'll be patient. So um, he loses it, but he gets it back again almost.
0: He gets it back, but then he wants to die, you know. So we get back to this in action. You know, he says in four-seven. Yeah. Uh, you know, around 73, when he's, you know, been healed by the doctor, um, Cordelia is there and she's crying. And he says, be your tears wet. Yes, faith. I pray weep not. If you have poison for me, I will drink it. I know you do not love me for your sisters have, as I do remember, done me wrong. You have some cause they have not.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, you know, again, we get to the, the inactive leer. And, and it was really, I mean, how, wasn't it, it was his desire for inaction that got him into this situation in the first place, right? He didn't want to be king and he wanted to be, See, you you're using king and father, which I want to come back to, but you know, he wanted to not rule, right. But still, still be called king. Um, and so now he's, he's in a similar boat where he's presented with a challenge and he, and he, you know doesn't even want to be alive anymore so he keeps kind of i don't know diminishing himself um,
1: i mean i think that lear and gloucester they're in the play together for a reason and it's sort of like if you have a question about something that happened to lear whatever's happening with gloucester's will cast some light on it and vice versa you know so uh betraying their own child judging them too quickly being kind of gullible uh going kind of mad the two of them end up on the beach together uh and w- that wanting to die is much more uh looked at in the gloucester subplot you know uh he tries to commit suicide his son is helping him not to commit suicide you know, at the end, you know, I can die here as well as somewhere else. And he says, are you still on that? You know, we must endure our going hence as we endured our coming hither. Ripeness right, is All. And Gloucester says, and that's true too. And Gloucester is torn between two passions at the end when he realizes his son is alive. He, it's too much for him you know, and he's caught between joy and sorrow and his heart bursts smilingly. And Lear, he he knows that Cordelia is alive, but his brain starts to make him think that maybe, he knows that she's dead, and his brain starts giving him the illusion that she might be alive. And look, she's moving, she's moving. And just those two things happening at the same time, you know, are too much for him. And he dies. I'd like to defend King Lear's first plot a little bit, okay? Because what we have is, is the, the play begins and we've got, uh, what is it, Albany and we've got Gloucester and Kent. And it's, I always thought that King Lear, I always thought the king was more supportive of Albany than he was of Cornwall. So that's it. It's, it seems to be a choice between those two. Right between the two older daughters. And Lear says, I want to do this in order to make peace in the kingdom. And he brings in the third daughter. And it's like, we're going to divide it up three ways. And I'll have a hundred nights, and I'll go back and forth from one to the other, well, actually, maybe his plan was to mostly stay with Cordelia, you know, because it was upon you that I was hoping to set my care.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So his plan is to have the kingdom divided into like a tripod, because uh, he knows that Reagan and Goneril are going to kill each other eventually. And it's not Albany who's causing the war with Cornwall, right? Cornwall and Reagan are both warlike, and Albany and is very peaceable, but Goneril's a real, you know, so you know that if there was a fight between Albany and Cornwall, Albany was the last to hear about it. You know, it's like, Oh, I got into another fight with Cornwall. That was news to me. Um, so that, that is a situation he's got. How do I keep these, these two from killing each other? If I give them both equal power, they're both, you know, older, uh, it's going to be a disaster. If I give it to one of them, the other second one is going to, you know, I give it to, to Goneril, then Regan will kill her. I give it to Regan, Goneril will kill her. It's, it's, you know, all right, I'll divide it three ways. I'll have my knights. I'll have my little army, and I'll stay with, with Cordelia. And maybe it'll work out. Maybe with a little bit of extra power, Cordelia could keep peace between the other two all they, they've got to do for this to work is they've got to pledge allegiance to the flag. You know, they've got to say, who's got the most loyalty to me. All right, you're loyal to me. Okay. You get this. You're loyal to me. You get this. And suddenly Cordelia goes all conscientious objector, you know, and she blows the plan. Um, and she makes him think he doesn't, she doesn't love him enough. Yeah, which was yeah. You know, so again, King Father mm-hmm. fighting against each other. Uh. So I, I'm not. I'm not saying it was a good plan, but I'm saying that it was an it was it was bad strategy. But I think there was some strategy in. it.
0: No, I mean what you say makes a ton of sense, right? And, and teasing out the what we learn of the characters later you know, what you say makes a lot of sense, because I think you're, I think you're completely right about, you know, the albany Cornwell and the Reagan-Goneril relationship. But how, how would, how did Lear miss um, Cordelia having that response? You know, what, what in his, was it vanity or was it strategic miscalculation or was it something else?
1: I think it was vanity and strategic miscalculation. Um, I mean, probably the best strategy would be just to have the oldest, you know, there's a reason for primogeniture, right? And have the oldest one inherit everything and make sure that Cordelia is well married in another place and she's far away. So maybe she has a chance to survive. And Reagan's probably, uh, in trouble because you know either she she's going to come up against goneril but you know whichever one wins you've got a united kingdom and you've got cordelia off save so realistically probably the best he could do was save two daughters and he tried to save three
0: well that's interesting what you say about you know she would potentially be far away that that adds to his strategic deafness in that he's trying to marry her off to France or Burgundy. Right. Right. And Burgundy, correct me if I'm wrong, is in modern France. So Mm -hmm. he, she would get a third of the kingdom, but if Goneril or Reagan just went loco and tried to start something, she could feasibly Cordelia, his favorite could feasibly just jump on a boat, and go back to her kingdom of Burgundy or France and let them duke it out. So that, that does lend more credence to Lear's strategic ability.
1: and, and and they, they might, she might outlast him because she'd have some people backing her up with, you know, I mean, uh, Burgundy or France would give her some, on the other hand, uh, I, it's it's very interesting because nobody is in this play they're hope nobody's hoping that Cordelia conquers England with France. You know, it's like gee, I hope these two escape, you know, and don't get killed. But nobody's saying, "Oh gee, really, we we'd love France to come back over and take things over." Again.
0: Well, I'm glad you're bringing up France because it it was super interesting to me. You know, it's obviously a very interesting way to present France initially when Lear disinherits Cordelia Mm
2: -hmm. and
0: says "And France says, you know, I'll take her
2: Mm -hmm. and,
0: and he does. But then, you know, there is the scene later on where France and his army land with Cordelia and then France takes off. He goes back to France.
1: Right. Right. Which which, is a scene. It's just like cut out of every production.
0: Yeah, which is cut out of every production. You know, like I read, you know, the last thing I saw was that McKellen performance, Uh Theater Live, which for our audience is way better than the Peter Burke that's on YouTube.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was them fighting words, man.
0: (laughs) For our audience, George sent me his favorite Lear and I sent him my favorite Lear and I... I made, it, put, I made it through about the first 40 minutes of, of his Lear. And I think I don't, maybe you made it through about 20 of mine. I don't know.
1: No, no, I, I, you. Let's put it this way. Yours was not an eccentric choice. The McKellen was was quite good. I liked it. It was it was quite good. Um, the, the Peter Brook is a bit of its time. It's, you know, the existentialist King Lear. It's like if... It, it, it's like turning Shakespeare into a Beckett play.
0: Yeah. You know? That's a great yeah. way to describe it with, yeah. with, with John Paul Sartre directing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I think that there was, there was a writer in the sixties or seventies called Jan Kott who was Polish and it was Shakespeare, our contemporary. And so it was like, Oh, you know, here we've got terrible, terrible, terrible politics, politics in Eastern Europe. And, uh, uh, there's a guy who understands that, and that's Shakespeare. Shakespeare knows bad, po- you know, politics under power. That's bad, um, and uh, I think that that production was very much in that line. Um, have you ever seen? Uh, there's a. There's a. Have you ever seen the Russian version of Hamlet by Kozintsev? No. It is very interesting because, again, it's a political Shakespeare. Uh, it was during the Khrushchev thaw, and it was, I mean, the Hamlet problem is we're underneath a tyrant. How do we kill this tyrant? Well, Russia is right underneath, just coming out of Stalin. They've got, you know, they're in the Khrushchev era. There's the Khrushchev thaw, and the question is why is it that nobody killed that guy, you know? And so everything in the Russian Hamlet is bringing out the political stuff of secret police, surveillance, backstabbing, you know, and apparently people in Eastern Europe, when they, they, you know, when Hamlet turns on Ophelia, it's like, yeah, The minute that you think that somebody's turning you into the authorities, they're outside the circle. You know, uh, you find out who the person is who was building up the Stasi file on you. That guy's not in your circle
0: anymore. Mm. I'm I'm really glad you're bringing this up because it gives me a chance to plug um, an essay by Ismail Kader, uh, who's an Albanian novelist that's been, you know, shortlisted for the Nobel prize in literature multiple times, but I grabbed his um, collected recent essays at uh, Mm. deep vellum bookstore for our local Dallas listeners. Go check it out. Will Will Evans over at deep vellum runs a good shop. Um, And Ismail made that exact same point where he's like, you know, growing up in Albania in the sixties, seventies, eighties and reading Hamlet just made total sense to him. It's like, Oh, family blood feud like <laughs> <laughs> right. vengeance you know that requires that requires uh you know a death to uh balance a death yeah or a murder to balance a murder yeah this well, how how is this complicated england like this is of course what you do um, right. if i can find that essay online i will post it in the show notes and i'll also send it to you george because it's, it's a fascinating essay but, you. you know, where the, the, the vengeance here se- seems to be not so much for, um, at least initially, um, as the play is gaining kind of its, its, its dramatic momentum. It's not initially a, a play of revenge. It's a play of minor slights. You know, it's, it's Cordelia being honest and Lear misinterpreting it. It's, it's Regan and Goneril maybe just not being his favorites and being jealous um, of, of Cordelia. It's Cornwall uh, maybe not trusting his wife for good reason, we find out later on. So mm-hmm. it's not anything that is, you know, they did X, so I need to do Y. It is purely, maybe, maybe it's a play about vanity. And what, what comes of vanity?
1: Yes and no. Here's the thing, okay? Let me put that. Um, all right. So the, the, uh, the antithesis we're making is that there's two ways of interpreting Shakespeare. There's a political Shakespeare and there's a psychological Shakespeare. And Shakespeare knew his politics and Shakespeare knew his psychology. And, you know, like the Laurence Olivier Hamlet seems to be filmed inside the Oedipal Complex. You know, it's all psychological, it's all inside the head, it's all inside fog and stuff like this, and the version of, the, the McKellen version nods to the politics, I think, because everybody's got these costumes that are Russian-looking, right? They're like they're like czarist Russia, you know, they look like Cossacks. So there's a, you know, I think that's a signal that says, look, the politics here are for real and they could kill you and what bugs me about almost every production i've seen is they try to psychologize Goneril. you know that oh he was mean to her and he says oh into your womb conveys sterility and then we'll film and she's got this tear coming down her eye and if only he was nicer to her then she wouldn't have engaged in major power politics to try to kill all of her enemies, you know, and the play, you know, it it is, we need to fight our father. We need to fight him fast. We need to fight him in the heat. We need to come up with a pretext. We need to, to, to come up with a pretext and, and turn on him fast. And so the biggest problem is that the you know, they, they show these riotous nights, like it's a biker gang. Um, And to me, I think that these could be like his attendance in the, you know, in the nursing home. They could be just people who take care of him because they never say anything really fighting. wise. I think that, we're not being treated with the ceremonial affection with which we were one, you know? So they're all very soft-spoken, which is probably why you need Kent. It's like, oh, here's a tough guy who kicked somebody. Well, he really stands out. This is new, we need
0: one of him. Um, so who, let me ask you this. If we could go to act one, scene four, because I, 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 had, I had a question about this. Okay. And I think we're leading to it. So in this, in this quick scene, Goneril uses the word fear three or four times over the course of like 20 lines. Um, so the only person she's talking to here is Albany. Right. Um, and she says, so this is around line three uh, this man hath had good counsel a hundred nights, tis politic and safe to let him keep at point a hundred nights. Yes, that on every dream, each buzz, each fancy, each complaint dislike, he may and guard his dotage with their power and hold our lives in mercy. Oswald, I say, and Albany says, well, you may fear too far. Goneril says, safer than to trust too far. Let me still take away the harms I fear, not fear still to be taken. I know his heart, what he hath uttered, I have writ my sister. If she sustains him in his hundred nights, when I have showed the unfitness. Oswald enters. How now, Oswald, what have you writ that letter to my sister? I, madam. Take you some company and away to horse, inform her full of my particular fear, and thereto add such reasons of your own as may compact it more. So, I'm wondering. Who is she trying to convince that she's afraid? Is she trying to convince Albany that she's afraid to like trigger his protectiveness? Like, or or is is, or is she actually afraid?
1: I don't think she's actually afraid. Okay. I don't think she's actually afraid because the next thing we see is, you know, the next scene, Regan, it's like, Oh, Gloucester, did my father's godson seek your life? Was he not one of the company of those knights? You know, there's a party line there and they're pushing it. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't think Reagan feels that, really thinks that King Lear somehow caused uh, whatever happened to Gloucester's son to happen. But, you know, oh, we've got a story. It's him. It's the knights. We're going with it. We're sticking to it. And, um, you know, I don't think that these nights are riotous any more than Mexican immigrants all belong to MS-13. Topical. Right?
0: Hashtag topical.
1: Hashtag topical. All right, so I've just lost half the audience.
0: So. <laughs> no, they can go.
1: Okay, just people, this is politics, and politics is making up things to be afraid of.
0: Right. That, that's that's a very interesting observation, and and it's also interesting because you you know have already teed up this relationship between Reagan and Goneril, mm-hmm. that they're going to go after each other, but it's so interesting their level of implicit communication with each other. Okay. I mean, it's explicit in that they're writing letters, but it's also implicit to the to the fact that they have like completely and a hundred percent are on board with working together. To to toe this party line, because that will diminish Lear's strength. But your your what you're positing is that they are doing that just to get him off the board. To use a Game of Thrones, um yes. analogy. Also, hashtag topical. Um, for for our listeners that are listening to this a few years hence, the Game of Thrones was a television show that used to be good. Um, <clears throat> that we we just got rid of the other half of the audience. <laughs> Um, but it's super interesting though. If, if that is the case, uh, which I'm mostly sold on that, 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 you know, your, your hypothesis that Lear split the kingdom up three ways because Goneril and and Regan would go after each other so hard, they are in full hundred percent cooperation. Um, because they want to get Lear off the board. So what do we make of, of, of Lear's initial decision, knowing their level of kind of political adeptness.
1: Really bad, really bad. I mean, it was just, it was a strategic disaster, you know? Uh, And maybe that's where being the father got in the way of being being strategic. You know, because if it's a if it's a strategic plan, then it doesn't matter whether he likes one of them or not. You know, it doesn't matter if they actually do love him or not. It's it's politics. But he, you know, I mean, he he's eighty plus years old, and this looks like it's a pretty dangerous world, right? So he can't have been an idiot all his life. He he must have uh, dealt with some dangers up to this point Um, which by the way that is what I liked about the Peter Brook version is that you could see how this guy was at some point some kind of warrior king you know he was he has some traces of the bruiser he used to be you know Um, but in this political world, clauster and Lear escape for a while. they get outside of it and, and for me that's what the last speech is we've left all that behind. We're going to listen to it we're, you know it's like television to us we're not, it's not our world anymore and we're going to take upon us the mystery of things as if we were God's spies right? We have achieved a purely contemplative connection to it and a disconnection from it. Um, Because as long as you and I have each other, the rest, that's, that's, that's all the world we need.
0: So I guess what's tricky about that though is, (laughs) isn't that escaping his culpability for putting these motions in train? Yes, I mean you can make the argument that he's powerless but I mean he could at least implore Edmund you know try to make a deal let's get out that get out that political adeptness and try to make use of it but he doesn't he just goes lead me lead me to the, lead me to the prison you know at least I'll have Cordelia young you know recently married Cordelia <laughs> You know, it's not like, take me, let her go, and send her back to France, you know?
1: Well, earlier on the beach, he does say to the people he thinks are capturing him, I'm high-born, I'm worth the ransom. You know, so maybe he thinks that if these guys are sane, you know, she'll be ransomed. She's the queen of France. You know, they could make a lot of money off her. Um, Edmund is unusually evil.
0: But so good. So good. Like, how good was Edmund in that McKellen?
1: Yes, he was good.
0: Oh, my God. Here's
1: one thing that I really thought. I mean, that was the one that I could see this is. Or if we haven't lost half the audience, let's do it now. Uh, you could see, I think, wh- how he got Goneril and Reagan. You know, Reagan's got this guy who's this monster of vitality and probably very inconsiderate. And, you know, Goneril's got this weak guy who's moral, but And considerate, but not very powerful. And he probably was, he probably just acted like the opposite of their husbands for both of them. Mm -hmm. You know, he was rough with Goneril and tender with Reagan, and both of them wouldn't have a defense against that. It'd be like, wow, you know. And so that's that, that's this guy. I mean, he is, he can be whoever he needs to be at the moment to get what he needs at that moment. You know, um, and that's the thing that even they can't see even they who can pretend so well can't see that somebody isn't necessarily what he pretends to be you know both of them are convinced that he's really in love with them you know and he's like do I have one do I have both do I have neither neither can be enjoyed if the other is still alive yeah yeah so this guy is the schemer in the world
0: well and it speaks a lot you know you you brought up lear's ability before this and edmund's state before this happens is kind of belies that right like edmund is just gloucester's bastard and that's all he is Mm -hmm. and he hasn't there's nothing about him having done anything having you know he's not respected he's not you know looked at as somebody that's important at all Um, it's only
1: he's he's been away these nine years and will away again yeah yeah yeah.
0: Um, and so that's interesting because he couldn't have put these very adept moves Um, he could not have made these very adept moves with Lear still had his full capability. And, you know, Edmund is three moves ahead of everybody else in this play the entire time, you know. And even, even when he's not three moves ahead, he sees opportunity. You know, like when he bumps in Edgar and, uh-huh. you know, says, draw, draw. And then right before the guards come in, cuts himself. So yeah. he's, not, he's not only three moves ahead, but he can also think on his feet, you know, and it's exactly that. Um, that causes the, you know, kind of final tragedy of the play where there's, there's no even talk of ransoming. There's not even a moment where he considers mm-hmm. it. As soon, no. as, he, as soon as he brings Lear and Cordelia back, he sends the man in to kill him, you know? And so it's, it's, it, 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 so I'm just saying that as it backs up your point of how good Lear was before this decline, before this very rapid decline that Edmund was not even in the mix, couldn't even be in the mix, had to get out of town. But then the second that he saw it, he saw a opportunity. He's basically, you know, the main catalyst of, you know, the action of the play. Yeah.
1: What I like about the, the play is that it's like this, it's like honest people at the end of the world, you know, they're in, they're in the apocalypse land. But the people around Lear are crippled by being truth-tellers. You know, the fool can't do anything but tell the truth and Kent can't, can't do anything but tell the truth. And I think it says something good about Lear, that these are the two people who've been hanging around him for the past decades. You know, so Lear is probably pretty open, you know, um, Edmund doesn't fit into any world that King Lear would make. And maybe it's just because King Lear is in his dotage that the Edmunds are coming in. Yeah. Um, But nobody in the play. Nobody in the play is equal to Edmund. You know, I mean, he. He's like a he's like a universal Yago. Mm hmm. I mean, much more successful than Yaga was.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, he almost has it all. And um, if, this is also possibly why it's in a weird way an optimistic play. if If Edgar hadn't gotten this letter, Edmund would have gotten away with everything. And it would be... King Edmund the Bastard. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe it's that King Lear's failings are human failings. You know, wanting to be loved, wanting to be appreciated. You
0: know. No, I think you're onto something there. And because I you know, when you mentioned Kent and the fact that he sticks around at risk of death, you know, mm-hmm. disguises himself, sticks around and also challenges Lear in front of the court, mm-hmm. right, right in that first act, right in this first, first scene. Um, <clears throat> why, but why won't Lear listen to him? You know, Lear has a chance to save face, you know, he has a chance to save face when Kent intervenes and says, don't be so rash, you know, don't, don't disinherit Cordelia, you know, think about what you're doing. And he doesn't, he doesn't even pause. <laughs> he just says, get out of town, you know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So is I've, that, is
0: that, well, I, and so here, this might be Lear's, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. I want to leave the door open for this is Lear's political adeptness. Because you know, maybe Lear. <laughs> I mean, it's what does what is Lear? What is Lear trying? Manu- Lear's vanity has got to trump everything there, right? Mm-hmm. Because because of Cordelia's answer, you know. I mean, has he, has he just completely given up at that moment? Because he's like, well, you know, Cordelia said the wrong thing. She doesn't love me. So I don't care what happens. I don't care if Reagan and Goneril kill each other. And I don't care if Cordelia has got to fend for herself. Like I'm done with it, you know? So is he, is he starting to like, just kind of lose his mind at that point? Cause then when his most trusted advisor, Kent says, think about what you're doing, old man. And he says, get out of here. I mean, the only thing that I can think of is, you know, is he hoping that Kent takes Cordelia with him?
1: No, I don't think he's thinking too sharply at this point. But I think this is interesting because this is, I think, the angriest King Lear has ever been in his life. Mm. Okay? Because, first of all, for whatever... United reason he doesn't think that Cordelia loves him you know which has really got to hurt because probably the only person that he thinks maybe really loves him is Cordelia you know there's got to be something a little bit off about the feelings of Goneril and Reagan Um, and when he's really angry and he says you know stand not between the dragon and his wrath and Kent is just you know what? You know, am I going to be polite when Lear is mad? You know, mm-hmm. just is giving it to him, and he does to Kent worse than he did to Cordelia, because mm-hmm. Cordelia is just like, I'm not going to give you something. With Kent, it's I'm going to deprive you of something, mm-hmm. right? But look at the way he does it, in 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 the context of this play. I am so angry at you that you have got five days to get out of town. Five days, you got to get out of town, that's it. You know, it's not he stabs him, he murders him, he sentences him to death right there. You know, he banishes him, you know, with a sort of legal framework. You know, and he, he, he almost goes into legal language, because you did this, because you tried to get me to change my mind, because you undermined royal authority. You know, and it's almost like a formula, a legal, you know, prosecution. Because you did all this, I sentence you to banishment. And the banishment is you have to leave five days from now. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look at Cornwall. If this is true or if this is false, it makes you Gloucester. He doesn't care about truth at all. You know, um, I'm, upon your eyes, I will set my feet. You know, he just violent angry passion as in ordinary things you know because somebody that they did, somebody didn't obey him enough you know so king lear is the angriest he's ever been and he's already much more legalistic than these monsters so his failure is in the terms of the play, it's kind of measured.
0: But it's still, you know, this, this anger and where did it come from, right? And I think that Edmund hits on this a little bit in his first soliloquy where he talks about um, people's belief in, you know, the position of, of Saturn, Right And and, uh, and how that influences our decisions. And I loved how in the McKellen version, what a big deal McKellen made of, you know, how, how often he mentioned the gods and how he used the gods in like his formulation, right. Of how, of why, why he's doing things. I thought that was brilliant. And
1: at the end where everybody prays, mm-hmm. you know, everybody prays that King Lear might survive and Cordelia might survive. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Doesn't work. Doesn't work but that you know that speaks more to we are culpable for our decisions we are we are the ones that make them and we are the ones that reap what we sow yeah
1: well, let's put it this way you know this play is also on one hand as flies to wanted boys are we to the gods that kills for sports and on the other hand uh you know you justicers up above there is some form of winged justice and it does feel like the world has thrown off the most evil person just sort of rejected them like like the world itself has its own kind of antibodies and rejects these people from out of itself
0: yeah but cordelia too
1: yeah cordelia too
0: that's what makes it tricky. And that's where you almost have to go. Or flies. Because if we well, were justicers above, then Cordelia would you know, be peaceably and happily married and living in her kingdom in France.
1: I don't know. I don't know. Because this play goes into the afterlife. You know, this is weird. I mean, King Lear wakes up and he thinks he's in the afterlife. And he says, you are a spirit in heaven... And I'm down here below on a wheel of fire where my own tears do singe me. Um, I think that there is something pure about Cordelia and pure about King Lear, which, you know, like Hemingway said that, you know, the world can destroy you, but it can't defeat you. You know, these people, they're destroyed, but they're not defeated they They go down fighting and they don't turn into the bad thing.
0: Which would notionally make it somewhat optimistic.
1: Somewhat optimistic. Yeah. Somewhat optimistic. You know, that, that in some way, they kind of go out on their own terms.
0: Yeah, I mean, Cordelia did come back. She risked it. I mean, I think that she did it for, you know, the love of her father, but yeah. there was risk involved that she was, I'm sure aware of
1: what she says to King leader. We're not the first, but meaning the best have incurred the worst.
0: Well, George, we are at, uh, 50 minutes. So we, we packed it, we packed the show. So thank you so much, George, for, uh, for joining us. Thank thanks you, for sir. doing, thanks for doing the Plato project thank
1: you sir uh please plug the plato project and tell all your your uh followers that it's a great thing and that you talk much more than i do at the plato project so that they should (laughs) they shouldn't be scared and that there are 12 other people to hold me back and put me in a box (laughs) and not let me talk all the time
0: oh no no this is great george i really appreciate your insight i'm glad glad you agreed to do this and i'm I'm glad we got to talk some king lear so thanks
1: okay and uh give give some give some chance to the peter Brook version it'll it'll grow on you
0: all right i'll give it another chance uh so for our listeners i'm going to try to find that ismail kader essay uh hopefully that'll be in the show notes and i will link the not my favorite king lear version by peter (laughs) Brook as well on george's recommendation thank you sir